0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So here at Cross and Crown, we believe that these words are God's own. So when the Bible is being read, we are hearing God speak. Today I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31. Now feel free to follow along in your own Bibles or the words will also be on the screen. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.
1: There is an unfrequented corner in the Palatine Museum in Rome today. I'm not sure if anyone here has been there at all. But amid all of the glamorous statues there and all of the artefacts, you will find a roughly etched slab of marble that once defaced the imperial palace. Scholars have called this slab the Graffito of Alexamenos. Unearthed by archaeologists in the 19th century, this ancient graffiti depicts a caricature of a person standing next to a crucified figure that has the head of a donkey. Below the figure is a crudely crudely drawn Greek carving, and that reads, Aleximenos worships his God. Scholars believe that this grafidio is the earliest known pictorial representation of Jesus' crucifixion, showing his followers worshipping Jesus as God. And in a city like Rome, which is so full, at least today, of triumphant Monuments to Christianity, I think there is really something quite strangely moving about the fact that the very first visual testimony that we have to the Christian faith amidst the debris of the standard Roman life in antiquity happens to be this. This graffiti, it demonstrates kind of a historical litmus test for the reason why we're asking a question like, Why did Jesus have to die today? Why did Jesus have to die? We're asking it because it just seems a little bit jarring, right? Now, how do we want to answer that question? Well, there's many ways we could go about it. Because Judas betrayed Jesus. Because the Jews had Jesus tried and found guilty of blasphemy. Jesus died because, hey, the Romans were very good at killing people and he got executed by them. But if the answer were that obvious, I don't think we'd be sitting here today asking this question. So what I want to do with you this morning is dig beneath the surface of this question to consider why Jesus had to die in a way that I think speaks directly to this moment here right now in Melbourne. And just up front, you know, there's so much that needs to be said to answer this question. In one way or another, you're actually going to be answering this question over the next month with the various questions you'll be going through. But all I really want to do this morning is is give you a teaser, almost an invitation for you to come back with more questions. So this is not going to exhaust your curiosity on this question by any means. If anything, it'll just provoke it. Uh, so this morning, we'll be looking at three movements in this passage of 1 Corinthians. It may sound a little abstract, but I hope by the end of it, this will... This will make good sense. Movement number one is identification. Two, subversion. Three, fulfillment. And just for context, before we dive into this, Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth there in the province of Asia Minor, it was a pretty hip, pretty urban, pretty relevant place. It honestly had many things in common with Melbourne today. And for new believers there in that context there in the Corinthian church, to whom this guy named Paul is writing, they felt the pressures of this urban, cutting-edge city to kind of capitulate or question what it is that they really believed about this whole Jesus dying on a cross thing. There was a sense of awkwardness amongst them. Like, do we really want to be telling people about this? There was a sense of being ashamed to some degree. And so, first off here, identification. Identification. Paul is opening this letter, this is chapter 1, the chapters didn't exist back then, but this would have been right up front in the beginning of his letter to the Corinthian church that he's writing to, to encourage them about their belief in Jesus and correct some of the things that was going on there. And he just kicks off here by owning this awkwardness. Effectively, he begins, yes, this message of the cross is foolishness, but... It's, it's foolish because, verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In other words, Paul is qualifying his statement here. He's not saying that Christ crucified is foolish in and of itself. He's saying Christ crucified is foolish relative to certain cultural values and expectations. In this case, the two dominant uh, cultural values of first century Judaism and the Gentile people there, the Greek people, non-Jewish people in the Greco-Roman Empire. Now, Paul himself, he was very well-positioned to speak into both the Jewish and Gentile cultures. He was a highly educated Jew himself. Uh, He was well-versed in Jewish texts and traditions, but he was also, interestingly, a citizen of Rome. So he was well-acquainted with Greek and Roman culture as well. But even more than these, Paul was a Christian. Ever since his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, which you can read about in a part of the Bible called Acts, Paul experienced a personal transformation that changed his life forever. It changed the way he viewed his ethnicity and his citizenry. Now, it's not that you know when you come to Jesus, all of a sudden you deny your ethnic background or your citizenship and nationality or anything like that. Jesus doesn't cancel out your culture because Jesus isn't just another alternative to your culture. For a Christian, Jesus doesn't replace our lives. He transforms our lives, holding all of who we are together, like flour to a baked cake. Jesus is the fundamental ingredient in the life of a Christian that raises us up and shapes us and reforms us and remakes us. Now I kind of want some cake. Although you had sausage rolls, which we need to get that going at Calvary Chapel. Um, So let's look here now at what Paul has to say into these two cultures. First, let's take a look at the Jewish culture. Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The word here for stumbling block is scandalon, which means to cause an offence. It comes, you know, the English word comes, scandal, comes from this Greek word. But what is it then about this message of the cross that is so scandalous to the Jews? Well, to answer this, we need to try and get our head into the mindset of a first-century Jew. For hundreds of years, the ancient kingdom of Israel had been divided and its people scattered abroad and subjugated under foreign powers. But through it all, the Jews held out hope that God would make good on his promises. Promises that were made to the nation of Israel through their prophets and to their patriarchs. And this hope was kindled throughout the centuries as God time and again demonstrated his power and presence through many signs and many wonders through the raising up of leaders to relieve the Jews and remind them that he he was their God and they were his people. And some of us may be familiar with the stories. Moses, who rose up and led the Exodus out of Egypt. Elijah and Elisha, who stood up to the prophets of Baal. Or that little gap between the Old and the New Testaments known as the Intertestamental Period, where Matthias and his sons led that guerrilla campaign against the Seleucid Empire in the Maccabean Revolt. Time and again, God had stepped in with powerful signs, demonstrating his commitment to his people. And within the Jewish texts and traditions, there was a promise that one day, God would raise up one from amongst the nation who would liberate his people forever. This is known in Hebrew as the Messiah, this person. The Messiah would come and he would restore the kingdom and redeem the Jews once and for all. So when we translate that word Messiah here into the Greek, which is the language Paul is writing in, we get the word Christ. So if you're a Jew living at the time of Paul under the iron fist of the mighty Roman Empire and you heard something about Christ being here You'd be looking out that door to the Roman soldier on the street corner and you'd be saying, You better tuck and run that red cape of yours because King Saul killed his thousands, King David his tens of thousands. How much more will the Christ? Christ is in town. Victory is at hand. Look out, Rome. The Jews were a very matter of fact people. They wanted practical outcomes, they didn't want a riddle or a philosophy, they wanted action. And the Messiah was going to deliver that for them. A display of divine power. And Paul preaches Christ crucified. You can almost start to feel the jarring of that phrase. To make matters worse, if you knew your Torah, the Jewish text, you'd know that according to Jewish law, to die by hanging on a tree was to be accursed by God. The Christ is the anointed of God, not the accursed. So how much more is this almost blasphemy to say Christ crucified? This just would not have comported with the first century Jewish idea of God. What about the Gentiles? Paul says, Where Jews demand signs, Greeks or Gentiles look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So where the Jews valued powerful signs and demonstrations of a conquering Christ, Gentiles valued wisdom, literally Sophia, which is related to the English word Philosophia, or philosophy, the love of wisdom. In the history of Western culture, every chapter begins with the Greeks. Logic, art, science, politics, you name it, you can pretty much trace it back to one ancient Greek philosopher or another. All the Greeks were very zealous for every kind of learning wrote Herodotus in the 5th century B.C., And it's this zealousness that we find a radical departure from the Jews in the Greek culture concerning the idea of wisdom. You see, for the Jews, philosophy was a part of their religious convictions. It was all top-down. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the Greeks, they came at the question of wisdom from the bottom up. Not with the fear of the Lord, but with their fascination with the natural world. And the more and the more that the Greeks grew in their wisdom of the natural world, the more they began to see their old Olympian gods from like 1000 BC with Homer and everyone, those old Olympian gods of Zeus and Poseidon and Apollos and everyone, as outdated mythologies. For the Greeks, the intellectual tide had turned. The end of all things was no longer found in the pan- pantheon of the gods. It was found in the pursuit of wisdom. Now, why is this the case for the Gentiles? Well, clearly, absent any religious expectation of a Messiah, their beef with Christ crucified hadn't so much to do with the Christ aspect, but more to do with the crucified. You see, in first century Rome, there were many creative ways to kill a human being. But of all of the ways, crucifixion was considered the most barbaric. Not only was it excruciatingly painful but it also had a profound cultural shock impact. In the opinion of Roman intellectuals, crucifixion was a punishment like no other. To be spread-eagled and exposed to the elements and pecking birds, long in agony, to quote Seneca, was to be a spectacle of shame. Crucifixion was irredeemably degrading. In the first century, we're familiar with it today. We wear crosses around our neck. You know, this would be something akin to, like I don't know, a, a, a gas chamber on a little necklace pendant. It would, it's, but even that doesn't quite suffice. This would be a cruel, dehumanising way to go. So this is Paul's cultural analysis here. He's identifying that each culture. Has something that it seeks, that it esteems. For the Jews, that's power. For the Gentiles, that's wisdom. And Christ crucified just doesn't fit. What about the 21st century here for you and me? What do you value? What do you desire? To help you think about that yourself, here are some questions. What do you think about the most? How do you spend your time? What do you want others to think about who you are? Where do you find your approval? What are those areas in your life that you feel most guilty about? What are the things or people that if you lost them, you would be lost? And why do you fear the things that you most fear? I appreciate that we haven't unpacked this message of the cross yet, but I want to be up front here and just get you to start thinking. When you bring your questions or answers to those questions to something like this message of Christ crucified, what do you do with the answers to your question? How does the cross address the way you answer those questions? For Jews demanding powerful signs, they come at the cross and they find themselves repelled by what looks like weakness. For the Gentiles seeking wisdom, they come at the cross and they find themselves repelled by what looks like foolishness. In both cases, these people groups, they come into the cross, they take one look and they're like, no, thank you very much, because they cannot see how the message of Christ crucified affirms what they value. They bounce off and they just go looking elsewhere for what it is that they are seeking. But here's what's interesting. This is not a universal response in the first century to the message of the cross. Remember who Paul's writing to? Christians in Corinth. Not every Jew and every Gentile is repelled by the message of the cross. Check this out again, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again, verse 24. To those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see what Paul is saying here. There is this whole other group of people, of which Paul is one, who are being saved, both Jews and Greeks. For these people, Christ is not weakness. He is the power of God. For these people, Christ crucified is not foolishness. It is the wisdom of God. In other words, power and wisdom are available at the cross for Jews and Gentiles, But only, and this is key, only if they are willing to countenance that they do not yet truly understand what it is that they demand and what it is that they are seeking. And this takes us to our second point this morning, subversion. If power and wisdom are available for the Jews and the Gentiles at the cross, then this tells us that the message of Christ crucified is not so much about what we value but about how we value things. This seems to be Paul's emphasis, at least here, as I understand it, in verse 24. Not on what's valued, but how they're valued, how the Jews demand signs and how the Gentiles look for wisdom. Just as Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus didn't change his Jewish ethnicity or his Roman citizenry, so an encounter with the cross of Jesus Christ does not deny your cultural values or your personality. Family, friends, work, study, success, acceptance, pleasure and leisure, the things that many of us value today, whatever it is for you personally, the message of the cross is not fundamentally in the business of rejecting these things. It's concerned to fulfill them. Now let me be real clear here. I'm not a motivational speaker. It's not why I'm here. I'm not in the business of promising your best life now. Uh, This is not wish fulfillment. This is subversive fulfillment. Those who are repelled by Christ crucified are so because they, they come to the cross and when they're confronted by it, they don't see how it could possibly fulfill what it is that they are seeking. But those who are compelled by Christ crucified are so because when they are confronted with it, it unpicks them and it overthrows them. And passing through it, they find what they were looking for all along, but in a way that they didn't necessarily expect, in a way that sees their values reshaped and reformed and raised up in Christ. And the fact that those who are repelled by the cross consist of Jews and Gentiles, and the fact that those who are compelled by the cross consist of both Jews and Gentiles tells us that the message of the cross is not for any one culture or any one cultural value system. This is a universal message. For all of the differences that make up so much of the hatred and the squabbling in our day and age today, for all of the differences of color and class and caste and creed, and code, and even our denominational catechisms within Christianity. How's that for alliteration? (laughs) For all of the differences that make up our society today, the message of the cross transcends them all, because this is not fundamentally about what's going on horizontally between us as human beings. This is more vertically about what's going on between us and God. The message of the cross is not a cultural message is why Christianity has gone to every tribe and nation around the world. It's a spiritual message. Again, when we look back here, this is what we see Paul saying. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Here is really really interesting in the logic of Paul. He's quoting an Old Testament or an old Jewish prophet named Isaiah. And in quoting this guy, he's starting to flip the argument around on those who are repelled by the apparent foolishness of the cross. And we see this in two ways. Number one, by appealing to this revered Jewish prophet. Paul churns the Jewish demand for power back onto the Jews by showing them from their own text that the message of the cross constitutes no sudden turn around in the purposes of God. This was his plan all along. Christ crucified is the message of the Messiah. And the Jews of all people should have known this because this is their prophet after all. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, you see this over and over and over again. The Jews come to Jesus, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. And all along there was Jesus standing there fulfilling what had been written time and again. Second, by referencing this particular text from Isaiah, Paul turns the Gentile search for wisdom back on its head as well. You see, this particular citation from Isaiah, it belongs to a grand series of texts where the prophet is repeatedly warning Israel about trying to outsmart God as though God were just like an advanced intellect on a human level. Coming to the question of wisdom from the bottom up, as the Greeks were, This was ultimately what Greek philosophers were trying to do. Find the nebulous one, 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 that holds it all together in nature. You see, the Jews already had access to wisdom from their scriptures, which is why they were looking for signs to locate their belief in history. The Greeks sort of had the opposite problem in that they had all of these signs in nature, but they didn't have any wisdom to connect it to. Thales suggested water unifies everything. Heraclitus, fire Anaximenes, heir, Plato, the good, Aristotle, the unmoved mover, all spectacles of endless contradictions, so much so that by the close of the Athenian Academy in 525 AD under Emperor Justinian, Greek philosophy had almost come full circle right back to its beginning in having a very mystical, animated, almost pantheistic pantheistic view of the cosmos. And by quoting Isaiah here, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that God is God. By definition, he is all-known, he is all-powerful. There is therefore no symmetry here between human wisdom and God's wisdom. God is not like you and me. He is the creator, not a creature. And that's why the Jews simply aren't in a position to make demands of him, and the Gentiles simply cannot search him out according to their own particular axioms or philosophical principles. And for you and I, 21 centuries later, it's the same message. If God is God, we are in the same position as the Jews and the Gentiles. Today we find ourselves living in a world with so much opportunity. And with all of the choices around us, it can be hard, if not impossible, to identify just what it is that might make up the single idea of the good life today. But if you look beyond the differences of what we value, to consider, as Paul does here, how we value things, we find a connection with the Corinthians, despite the passage of time. A local philosopher here in Melbourne, some of you may have heard of him, named Christopher Watkin of Monash University, he suggests that there are at least two ideas that shape how we value things today. Freedom and efficiency. Freedom is the idea that regardless of what you and I value, we all value the freedom to choose our own values. This is like a meta-value, a value of values. The freedom to create our own reality, our own identities, our own worth, our own idea of the good life. So freedom then, in this sense, is having no constraints on what it is we choose to value. So that ultimately what matters the most isn't what I choose to value, but that I am free to value whatever it is that I want to value. The irony here, though, is that this ideal of freedom, it tends to enslave us in that no one is ever free to not choose. Everything that was once considered sacred and immutable is now up in the air. Belief in God is a choice. Fidelity in marriage, a choice. Gender, a choice. Choice is inescapable. So now we find ourselves pressured with always wondering, hmm, uh, have I made the right choice? And who will tell me if I I haven't made the right choice? Because in a free society like this, no one has the right to judge me or question me, so who's actually going to come up and talk to me about whether or not I made the right choice? But we all desperately desire affirmation for the choices we make, don't we? So this idea of freedom actually starts to put us in a bit of a bondage to seeking out affirmation in all sorts of places and spaces. Efficiency, on the other hand, this is the idea that we live in a market-driven society where freedom makes up so much of the human liberties that we enjoy today. Efficiency is the inescapable chains holding us back. And it's not like these are, you know, one before the other. These, these ideals are happening in conflict every single day around us, where everything is kind of seen as a negotiation, something that can be bought and sold, love, security, identity. It's all a contract, a business deal struck for personal gain. Efficiency is all about searching for the most efficient means in any given situation. So much so that the search for ever better means itself becomes the end. Efficiency is itself the good rather than a means to some other good, and this creates a culture of competition and the, the need to always outperform one another, from competing in schools and sporting teams, getting boyfriends, girlfriends, degrees, jobs, to competing in finding a spouse, to keeping uh, that spouse, and then to you know, competing in the housing market, to then competing with having babies and children, and then we just repeat it all over again by trading off our kitties against one another. Freedom and efficiency. These have swept across our culture today. And now we find ourselves wondering, is this the most optimal spouse? Is this the most optimal church? We even optimize our holidays to make sure we get the most efficient use of our time when we're away. As Netflix CEO Reed Hastin candidly admitted, the greatest competitor to the Netflix platform is sleep. In other words, in the name of efficiency, let's burn people out. So on the one hand, efficiency says we need to be precise and optimized to perform at our best in this aggressive market society. But like freedom, it's an empty promise because in the name of efficiency we squeeze out every last ounce of our capacities, we crash and we burn. Hello darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again, because a vision, softly creeping, left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. In restless dreams I walked alone, narrow streets of cobblestone, neath the halo of a street lamp, I turned my collar to the cold and damp when my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon God they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls in tenant halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. The loneliest loneliest moment in your life is when you climb to the peak of whatever it is you were looking for only to realize that there is nothing there. To realize that what it is that you were searching for has just lassoed you onto another search. And we move and we move and we move, opening doors, all sorts of doors, doors that need to lead to nowhere in a desperate attempt to find whatever it is we're looking for. Listen to the songs of our culture. You don't need to have a preacher boy come and tell you this. This is the way our society works. Look at the arguments we're having in society today. We may be modern compared to the Corinthians. What we value may have changed, but how we value things, apart from the message of the cross, ultimately leaves us alone in the dark, in the sound of silence. Looking for fulfillment in anything. Every, you know, even very good things, apart from the cross, is to amplify whatever that thing is into an ultimate thing. And the Bible calls that an idol. Because there's a reason why the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Because if you can get that one right, everything else just follows in its place. We all experience incomplete joys to some degree, apart from the message of the cross. This continual, relentless search for meaning and purpose, for fulfillment. Again, this is why our culture is so fractured and atomized, because we're all trying to assert our idols one over the other. Paul says, no. God stands in absolute uncompromising independence of all creation. And that is why the message of the cross is so confronting. Christ crucified may seem foolish to you, Jew, it may seem foolish to you, Gentile, but it subverts any human pretense, whether in thought or action, that might try and claim the salvation it offers for itself. I mean, think about it. If the Jews had their way and salvation was through the human demands of power, what kind of salvation would that be? it would be a salvation closed to only the strong at the expense of the weak, not to mention the Gentiles. If the Gentiles had it their way and salvation was found in the confines of human wisdom, what would that look like? It would look like something like the Hunger Games with a small band of intellectual elites at the expense of the rest of us to say nothing of the Jews. But Christ crucified, what would that look like? You, you, you could not make this message up if you would, and you would not make it up if you could. It's because of how this looks that it is actually open to all people. In its weakness and in its folly, we have a message for all people that no one can lay claim to as their own. And the reason is answered with one distinctively Christian idea. Grace. This is God's work, not your work, and that's why it works. Identification, subversion. Finally, this morning, one last time, let's look at what Paul says here about fulfillment. Verse 21, uh, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The irony of the situation of both the Greeks and the Jews is that in Paul's analysis, the very thing that they seek is only found in the very place that they despise. We preach Christ crucified. Jesus, again, he's not a rival to our deepest desires. He's not a rival to the concerns of the Greeks or the Hebrew culture or even our Aussie culture here in Melbourne. He is the true fulfillment of what it is we're seeking. And as salvation is a work of the Lord, the only difference here between those who find themselves repelled by the message of the cross and those who find themselves compelled is humility, a willingness when we come to the cross to to say perhaps, my way is not the way. And here's the thing, to confront the message of the cross with our questions and our answers to our questions is to confront Jesus, who himself models for us ultimate humility, the ultimate laying down, not just of his values, but of his very self, God, who is life, died. This is a once-for-all sacrifice. That's what makes the message of the cross so confronting, because to come to it is to encounter death. Not just any death, but the death of God, and not just any way of dying, but a crucifixion. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he didn't have to die. He chose to die out of love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atonement for our sins. Why did Jesus have to die? Because sin, the making of idols out of what we value in the place of God, separates us from God. And to be separated from the one who is life, it's just the nature of the case. Non-life is death. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It puts us out of a relationship of who God is, with who God is. So, again, why did Jesus have to die? Because it is only by the message of the cross that people are led to put their trust not in any human device but in God's own Son, Jesus Christ. Identification, subversion, fulfillment. The message of the cross identifies our idols. It subverts our self-sufficiency and it fulfills our deepest desires by bringing them into alignment with the purpose of our very creation. The good news of Jesus is brought, it's kind of like the sun that shines through on our dim little candles of ideas and values, as noble as they are. In C.S. Lewis' Great Divorce, the story follows the journey of the narrator who finds himself in a shadowy realm between heaven and hell. He meets various souls who have the opportunity to leave this realm and ascend to heaven, but they are unwilling to do so, many of them at least, because they're attached to their sinful ways and their various desires. They cannot stop worshipping their idols. One of the souls uh, the narrator meets is a ghost who has this lizard wrapped around him, restricting him from moving. The lizard represents the man's sinful desires and passions, which he's unable to let go of. And the ghost is becoming increasingly agitated. Now, he's resistant to the idea of ever surrendering this lizard. And when this angel approaches him to offer help, the ghost is just terrified. He's like, no, I can't live without this. It's gonna, I'm going to die if I let go of this. It's holding me up. It's holding me together. It's restricting and controlling the way I walk. I can't live without this thing. Lewis describes what happens next as, quote, a scream of agony such as I have never heard on earth. And this is what he goes on to say. Listen to this. Something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing a little bit bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flicked between huge and glossy, the huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I stare, started back. Staring, I rubbed my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen, silvery white, but with a mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, ripped with swells of flesh and muscle, stamping with its hoofs, And with each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. Not only was the ghost transformed limb by limb into a man, so was the lizard, its it's unrecognizably different from a lizard to a stallion. It's unrecognizably more glorious. And so the man now gets on his stallion and he rides. This is an example of what we're talking about here. The cross of Jesus Christ transforms our values into something we cannot even begin to imagine. It's not about coming to the cross and laying down who we are and, oh, woe is me, now I have to salute and execute. It's about living life and having it to the full. This is subversive fulfillment. This is what is on offer at the cross. And when you see the cross, it's because it's not only the beginning, nor is it the end of the Christian story. The reason for the fulfillment comes in what happened three days later. When you find, you read through that book of 1 Corinthians, you get to this passage in chapter 15. It's the great chapter in the New Testament about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're not talking about that today. But if you just follow the logic of the story here, it says that Paul begins that statement by saying, I committed to report to you of first importance that Christ died. So he introduces the resurrection by going back to what we've just studied. That he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That is why we call the message of the cross good news. Because there is a resurrection. Good Friday is good because of Easter Sunday. Why did Jesus have to die? Because there's no resurrection without a death. The resurrection brings fulfillment to the message of the cross. And Jesus himself, in this way, is the ultimate antithesis and fulfillment. In human form, dying to self and being reshaped and reformed and raised up again in new life. He is both the model and the means of Christian salvation. Over this month you're going to be exploring a lot of different questions here at Cross, 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 Cross and Crown. I hope you now start to think a little differently about that name. They all begin here, friends. Every question falls out of this cross. Either we come to the cross with our questions and we're repelled by it or we come to the cross and lay down what it is that we think we know and find ourselves compelled by the cross. Either way, Nothing passes through the cross untransformed. We all have a cross to bear. My question for you is whether or not yours has a resurrection. Let's pray. The Heavenly Father, <laughs> oh, only you could be so wise as to, so foolish as to be so wise. Father, we pray um, now, just praising you for the cross, for your death, for your resurrection from the grave and the life that we can have in you. Father, I just pray for my friends here who who don't know that life today, Lord, that this may be the day that they have an encounter with the cross and find themselves compelled by this message. Lord, we all have our questions. I have questions more and more now that I'm a Christian than ever before. But, Lord, you invite our questions. So, Father, I pray that as we come that we wouldn't have these obstacles in the way but that we would see the cross as a way of actually making sense of some of our questions, that we can't figure this all out on our own and then we can assent to belief, but it's something that actually can reshape the way we think. Forbid it, Lord, that we would be consumed by lesser things in this world, lesser pleasures, lesser powers, lesser ideas, anything but Christ crucified. Father, I pray that you would be merciful to us, that you would grant that everyone who hears this message would consider the cross in a new way, that we would be compelled by its message, by Jesus' perfect provision in death, and by the demonstration of power in overcoming death in the dawn of the day beyond that empty tomb. Father, I pray this because of the promise of your Son, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life, and we can know that today. The great subversion of time itself by being born again right now in the moment of temporality with eternal life. Oh God, You are good, and You can found the wisdom of every age, and that is why I praise You. Amen.